it's a really a great truth that uh, uh, Peter's uh, in Peter's point here in this passage. He's writing to those who are discouraged. You ever been discouraged? I think we've all been that in that place. Even as a, a believer, as a Christian, we know that we're saved. We know that we have uh, wonderful salvation. Yet we do get discouraged. And uh, he was writing to some uh, people that were discouraged because they were in persecution and they were under duress and they had a very difficult time with trials and testing and there was hostility toward them and he just wants to encourage them. And he wants to encourage them that they could triumph in their sufferings. Uh, They can be overcomers. They can be victorious even in the midst of unjust suffering and persecution. And uh, I think the greatest illustration that Peter knows about someone who triumphs in suffering, of course, is Jesus Christ. So you you don't need a better illustration than that, and so that's what he's using here. He's using Christ's suffering because Christ suffered unjustly. He suffered persecution. Christ suffered hostility that uh, like no uh, person could ever imagine. And yet in the midst of his suffering, he was absolutely triumphant. Triumphant, I guess we could say. And uh, he's an example that we too can be triumphant in our suffering. So we're looking here at verses 18 through 22. And uh, chapter 3, let's start with verse 18 once again. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now, uh, doth also now save us, not putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, last time we just looked at point number one, really, uh, and... Uh, Uh, Peter's showing us here that uh, uh, Christ triumphed in death. And last time uh, we looked at triumphant sin bearing. I like blue. All right. Triumphant uh, sin bearing. And we saw that Christ's suffering was ultimate. It was for sin. It was unique. Uh, It was comprehensive, it was vicarious, uh, and it was purposeful. Those were things that we looked at last week. Now tonight, notice secondly, not only a triumphant sin-bearing, but a triumphant sermon. Uh, The second thing that Peter wants to tell us, and we're focusing on this first of all tonight, uh, is that it was also at the cross... At the moment of his greatest suffering, when he accomplished a triumphant sermon. Verse 18 says in the middle of the verse, Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Uh, It's a very fascinating uh, element of our Lord's triumph. Uh, And it indicates that he 
Uh, we've already looked at how he triumphed over sin, and this indicates uh, to an, us another area in which he triumphed in his, uh, in his uh, suffering. Notice here it says he uh, was being put to death in the flesh. Now what does that mean? That's in uh, uh, right there in verse uh, 18. Being put to death in the flesh. Well, that simply means he died. No, it's not complicated, is it? No. He died. Uh, he actually died. Uh, the flesh simply means his physical life stopped, ceased. He actually died. And this, by the way, is one verse among many that gives us evidence that Jesus actually died on the cross. You know, there are some wanting to explain the resurrection and wanting to deny at the same time that it was miraculous, uh, having have they've offered the possibility, well, Jesus really never died. You know, he was on the cross, but he really never died. They took him down before he was dead. Uh, they put him in a tomb, and then somehow, you know, he got out of there. That's what, I mean, there are those who would try to argue that. Uh, and, uh, you know, just into a semi-coma, uh, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and he walked out. Well, this text is, I believe, very clear. As a number of other places, he was dead. He died. He was a victim of a judicial murder, if also an illegal murder. Nonetheless, it went through uh, the, some kind of due process, I guess, but he died. So this statement refers to his physical death. And on the cross, he was put to death in the flesh. But in God's due time, he made, was made alive by the Holy Spirit in his physical resurrection from the dead. Now, you notice here, it's not his human spirit that's in view. It could not properly be said that he was quickened or made alive in that. For his spirit never died. When you die, your spirit will not die. Okay? But after the body and the spirit have been separated in death, he was raised again by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 11, it says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. I think that's a great commentary on this, this particular verse here. Death was not the end of the Lord. He was raised from the dead, quickened, made alive by the Spirit. Again, here's an area that's often debated among theologians concerning the identity of the Spirit. Some say, well, there are no capital letters in Greek, so it could refer to the human spirit, which did not die in the crucifixion. But I believe our King James Bible has it correct. It's interpreted it the King James translators interpreted this by putting a capital S. So we know it's the Holy Spirit. Referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Now, this reference to the Spirit of God leads Peter back in time. It reminds him uh, that it was through the Holy Spirit that Christ once preached to spirits in prison. It says there in verse 19. Now, exactly who are those spirits who are in prison? Some 
again, believe, well, this is a reference to an act Jesus performed between the time of his death and the resurrection. And so they take the position that Jesus Christ went into the spirit world uh, or the residence of the spirits of the dead, and he announced that he had accomplished victory over Satan. Well, that view, uh, that view raises some serious questions. Why would Christ announce victory to people whose eternal destiny has already been sealed? Is he trying to rub it in? And does this interpretation imply the doctrine of a second chance? You know, when we rightly divide the word of God, it's always best to look at the meaning of the passage in the, what's the next word? Context. My people know that here. The context. Spirits in prison is explained in verse 20. The spirits in prison were people living in the days of Noah when he built the ark. These were the people mentioned in Genesis 6, 5 and 6, where it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. You see, these were the rebels who rejected the testimony of the Lord through Noah. And it's estimated, of course, that Noah spent over 100 years building the ark. Every nail he drove into that ark should have warned the men living at that time that there was judgment coming. Since they refused the testimony of the Lord through Noah, the flood came and destroyed them. And therefore, they were confined to a place of the departed spirits to await the final resurrection of the wicked at the great white throne. And that God speaks of in Revelation 20. Uh, Peter could say that the Lord preached to the spirits in prison when he wrote these words. The spirits of the people were confined. So we have a triumphant sermon here. Then we have a triumphant salvation. Verse 21. Verse 21 says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, again, here's another interpretive challenge. In this verse, you have the phrase, Baptism doth also now save us. And someone would say, look, there it is, baptismal regeneration. Well, we need to remember that it's very dangerous to pull a phrase or a verse out of context and build a doctrine. You can't just say, well, that's what it says, so you're going to be saved by being baptized. And also, there are those who know the Bible doesn't teach baptismal generation. I hope we know that. And so they try, sometimes they will try to explain away by saying, well, this isn't talking about water baptism. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Look at the context. Look at what the Bible says. First of all, the flood reminds Peter that not everyone living in those days of Noah would be judged by water. Who wasn't judged by water? Eight people. 
right? Eight people were preserved through the flood because of their faith in God and because of their entrance into the ark. And so the ark became, in Peter's thinking, a picture of salvation. And then also notice what precedes the phrase, baptism doth also now save us. It says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. In other words, the corresponding figure or the type or the picture is baptism. And just as the ark pictured salvation for Noah, baptism pictures salvation experience of the believer today. When you're baptized, you're showing what has taken place in your heart by accepting the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. That water just makes you wet. But it's a wonderful picture. It's a picture. It's a testimony of what has taken place in your life. And when Peter goes on to say that baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, the filth of our sinful natures, I mean, you, I could dunk you and dunk you and dunk you and dunk I'd still never get rid of that filthy sin nature, can I? Uh, and you can... Uh, water cannot remove that. You see, the ordinance of water baptism is dependent upon the answer or the pledge of a good conscience toward God. The response in the heart of the believer is that which is most important. The ordinance of water baptism reflects externally what has taken place in the believer's heart. It's a triumphant salvation. Then notice, fourthly, a triumphant supremacy. Verse 22. Verse 22 says, Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Jesus has gone into heaven. He sits as the exalted man on the right hand of God in token of God or the Father's full satisfaction in the work of the Son. And to him, all angels, authorities, and powers are subject. Now, here is a glorious final note of triumph. Who is at the right hand of God? Do I have to say to you that throughout all the Old Testament and all through the New Testament and all through eternity, the right hand of God is always seen as the seat of highest preeminence? The right hand of God is a place of strength. The right hand of God is a place of authority. And it simply says that when Jesus had accomplished his work at the cross, he was exalted to the right hand of God, the place of prominence, honor, majesty, authority, and power. Now, this is a theme that is often repeated. Just notice a few of these places. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. Where? On the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten of the world, he saith, and let all angels of God worship him. See, it's a place of authority and power. Hebrews 10, 12, But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. 
Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Romans 8, 24, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And then Philippians 2, again, a great passage uh, where it says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's talking about his humiliation. And he wants that kind of uh, character uh, from us as well. And in verse 8, it says, And being found as a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the, unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So Peter is saying here, Jesus triumphed marvelously even in the midst of his dying. And now he's on the right hand of God. Look at that phrase there. Having gone into heaven. That's speaking of his ascension. Having gone into heaven. Acts 1.11, which also said... Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Hebrews 6.20 whether, uh, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 8.1 Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So listen, when Jesus went to the grave and out of the tomb, and then he ascended into heaven. And that's a triumphant supremacy. Every knee bows to him. And what he, is he doing there? What's he doing there at the right hand of the Father? In this place of authority and power. He's interceding for who? You and me. You see, because he is willing to submit himself, God highly exalted him and it was through his suffering that he triumphed in that he now ranks above all things. Ephesians chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the, that which is to come. So it was through unjust suffering that Christ found a path of triumph. It was through unjust suffering that Christ gained his great and glorious victory. It was through unjust suffering that he triumphed in sin-bearing, triumphed over spirits, triumphed in salvation, triumphed as a supreme being at the right hand of God. So what's the point of this? Why does Peter go through all this? He's saying, look on your unjust suffering as a path of triumph. 
Look at your unjust suffering as a path of victory. It was for Christ, and it will be for you. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The path of glory is through suffering. And Jesus is our example. Philippians 1.29 For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.14, And thanks be to God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and make, maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. You see, he'll always cause us to triumph, even as Christ triumphed in the midst of unjust suffering. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over the spirit beings. Put them in their place, as it were. He provided an ark of safety in order that he might triumph over the judgment of God. He entered into the supreme place at the right hand of God. So don't under, underestimate the potential triumph in unjust suffering. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, you might have an opportunity. What kind of opportunity? It may be that because you take that suffering, you can lead someone else to Christ. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, the Lord will give you a great and glorious triumph over even the demons with whom you wrestle. It may be that when you suffer unjustly, you may become a source of safety for someone else who needs to weather the storm. And it would be that you should suffer triumphantly, the Lord will exalt you and lift you up. So we don't look at suffering, we don't look away from it, but we look through it to victory, to triumph. And that's, I think that's, a, that's the whole point of this. It's not just an exercise in going through uh, the death of Christ again, but it's, he is using this as an example uh, for a reason. Let's pray.